If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Song of Songs, chapter 5. And we'll be picking up from where Derek left off a few moments ago in verse 9 through chapter 6, verse 3. What kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved, that thus you adjure us? My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture his flock in the gardens, and gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, he who pastures his flock among the lilies. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this time that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts. Lord, we need to have clearer apprehensions of Christ. Lord, this is our greatest need. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious and kind, that you would be merciful to us, that you would enlarge our view of him, that we would be each individually and corporately, Lord, those who are well acquainted with the glories of Christ, ready at any moment to declare His excellence. Lord, we pray that You would make us a people such as this. Bless now the proclamation of Your Word this morning and me, the weak messenger, to declare it, Lord, to this end that Christ would be exalted. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Charles Spurgeon comments on a portion of this text. It is of Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, that we perceive the spouse to be speaking and mentioning in detail at least ten particulars, dwelling with delight upon the beauties of his head and his locks, his eyes and his cheeks, his lips and his hands, and every part of him. And beloved friends, I think it shows true love to Christ when we want to speak at length upon everything that concerns Him. 
the general here says, oh yes, yes, of course, Christ is the Son of God. He's also a perfect man. I believe that. But he does not want you to go into minute particulars concerning your Lord. It's not so with those who truly love the Savior. They wish to know all that can be known about Him. True love likes to become familiar with the object of its affection. Its heart is set upon that object. It studies it and can never know it too well or too closely. True love to Christ thinks of Him from morning till night. It is glad to be released from other thoughts that it may follow only its one darling pursuit. True love to Christ seeks to get to Him, to live with Him, to live upon Him, and thus to know Him so intimately that things which were unobserved and passed over at the first stand out in clear light to the increased joy and delight of the contemplative mind. I wish, dear friends, that we had many more of those people about who study Christ from head to foot, that they may learn all that can be learned about Him, those who would be able with the spouse to talk of His charms and beauties in detail and to describe them as she does with rapturous delight. So let me be frank with you. I I was brought to tears this morning thinking about the inadequate nature of myself to preach this message. I do not feel fit in any way to declare the glories of Christ. I wish that I were. I wish that I did. But we will together, I hope, be profited by the passage here at hand this morning. We're now in the fourth section of the book. The scene opened in chapter 5, verse 2, as Derek read earlier, with the slumbering bride who's too lethargic to arise at once and open the door for the visiting groom. And by the time she rouses herself, the groom's departed. So she wanders out through the streets searching for him, but without success. And then her loss is further aggravated by the watchmen who find her. They beat her. They remove her shawl or her veil, depending on how that's interpreted, because they've drawn wrong conclusions about her intentions. And so this is where we take up today in our text. And the theme for this fourth section I would propose is this. The church is at times a slumbering bride whose delayed response affects a time of spiritual languish, but will be brought again to a restoration in Christ's love. And by way of overview this morning, I have just three main headings. First of all, answering what He is. Secondly, answering where He may be found. And then finally, we'll draw an application from the text here. So first, answering what He is begin with making some general observations. We have here this question. Um, The bride is in her frustrated search for the groom and she makes this earnest plea, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved is what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. And then in verse 9, the daughters of Jerusalem respond to her with the first of two questions. 
asking, what kind of beloved is your beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women. What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? So, the nature of this question is taken by some commentators to be marked with scorn and given in a sarcastic sort of tone. But I, for myself, don't take it that way, as, uh, and I'm not alone in that. It seems to me rather here to be a more earnest, uh, cast in a more earnest frame, and posed by those who look on with a sincere curiosity to understand why it is that the bride is so taken with her beloved, that she has become so lovesick in his absence. What is it that makes him so charming that she will persist on in this search for him? And notice how they address this lovesick bride with great esteem here. They say, oh, most beautiful among women. And then we have the answer and the, the bulk of our passage this morning is really wrapped up in the bride's answer to this question. And she does so, she answers this question by extolling the excellent qualities of her beloved. And much like what we saw back in chapter in chapter 4 when the groom was extolling the bride's beauty, she does so by using similes for the various features in order to help illustrate and paint a picture that would clearly display this love of her life. And again, while each physical description is colored by a simile, there is a, uh, a likely metaphorical intent. In other words, while these physical features, when understood properly, could paint for us a perhaps a beautiful picture, it, it seems more likely that they're meant to point the reader to other attributes about the groom, um, such that pertain to the excellence of his overall character and nature, those things that, w- that make him so wonderful to her. And again, as I said when sorting through the description of the bride in chapter 4, we can say that the sum is greater than the whole. We don't want to get lost, in other words, in, in the fine details of each of these descriptions, but rather to appreciate the summation of what's being communicated here, which comes to us finally in uh, verse 10, or initially, I should say, in verse 10, when she says, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. The Hebrew word translated dazzling here means bright, shining. And this is connected then to the term translated ruddy or otherwise translated reddish. And I believe together this describes a bright countenance that emanates health and vigor. Outstanding among ten thousands is really an idiom that says he is excellent beyond compare among any innumerable company. So with that in view, then the bride begins to catalog. Uh, We have ten features of his excellence, which we will briefly consider. So she begins with the head. His head is like gold, pure gold. I believe this really speaks to his wisdom and his knowledge, his aptness to rule well. So, for instance, if you will think back with me to the image in 
uh, Daniel chapter 2, we have Nebuchadnezzar's monarchy compared to a, a head of gold as we look at that vision. One who is endowed with wisdom and ruling supremely. Secondly, his locks. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as raven. In other words, he's a picture of youthful vigor. We might say it this way, he's in the prime of life. He's brimming with vitality. Thirdly, his eyes. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. So we see here his eyes are clear, they're pure, they're calm. In other words, his inner being is at peace. He's peaceful. There's no hypocrisy or craftiness within him, no unruly passions. His eyes are peace. Fourthly, we see his cheeks. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. So the cheeks being a portion, a prominent portion of his countenance, and that that countenance being a reflection of his heart, manifests this sweet and pleasant aroma. Fifthly, his lips. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. So we have his words and his speech here dripping with love and grace. His hands. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. I believe what's being communicated is we think about hands as the instruments of work. That his hands are not only powerful, but exceedingly excellent of the utmost value he gives to others according to the riches of his kindness. Next is abdomen. His abdomen is carved ivory, inlaid with sapphires. So actually, in Hebrew, the word translated as abdomen is literally the bowels, which was understood as the seat of emotion, particularly the emotion of love. And so this describes the firm, immutable, even costly love that he has for his bride. Next, his legs. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. Pure gold. He's, he's rock solid. He's endowed with strength and stability. And, and not just strength and stability per se, but in the way that is right and good and noble. He will not falter. He will not fail. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. That is, he commands a certain dignity and honor as one who excels all others. His worth is beyond compare. And then finally, his mouth. His mouth is full of sweetness. That is, he speaks the truth in love. Every word is wisdom. And then she gives this summation to everything she's just said here. Sort of the book end from what she began. She says, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. 
So having made these observations, I want us to look back through these again now, through the lens of Christ. And as we consider the scenario at hand, the daughters of Jerusalem, as we've seen them appear at various times in the Song of Songs, appear to represent those who have drawn near to Christ, those who are on a course of joining with the bride and with Christ, and such as these see the beauty that she possesses, they call her O beautiful one, those who yearn with her for the beloved. And the answer that's given to the daughters of Jerusalem in the main portion of the text is that Christ is Christ Jesus is excellent beyond compare. That's really the main point here. Christ Jesus is excellent beyond compare. Now, we might step back a moment and say, well, in Isaiah 53 we're given a description of Jesus, unlike Moses, who is called the beautiful child. It says this concerning, this prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. Like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus, God incarnate, did not come in physical beauty when he took on flesh like ours. He was not stately and or handsome by face and form. No one was drawn to him for these sorts of reasons. And yet, we know very much that he was excellent beyond compare by the nature of his person. And his person was exemplified by the works, his life, his words. His teaching. And the church might well say of Christ, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. He is full of vigor and health. As John wrote, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Secondly, the bride says of the groom in King James vernacular, My beloved is the chiefest among ten thousand. To this, Spurgeon writes, chiefest. That is to say, Christ is higher, better, lovelier, more excellent than any who are round about him. If you shall bring ten thousand angels, he is the chiefest angel, the messenger of the covenant. If you shall bring 10,000 friends, he is the chiefest friend, the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. If you shall bring 10,000 physicians, he is the best physician, for he healeth all diseases. If you find 10,000 shepherds, he is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. If you find one, two, a hundred, a thousand 10,000, all excellent, they must all give way when He appeareth, as the stars are forgotten when the soul ariseth in His strength. Christ is the chiefest, the best, the highest of all beings. Whatever excellencies there may be in others, they are all eclipsed by the surpassing excellencies that are found in Him. Our beloved is excellent beyond compare. Now, as we consider the catalog of traits, we see that His excellence is found in every category and 
compounded than into one man. I appreciate what Peter Master says on this point. As he is the sum total of everything to be desired and the assembled aggregate of every beautiful object in the bride's description, we may glean the following. To see him will have an impact upon us similar to seeing and sensing all the most spectacular and precious sights and experiences added together. We may think of the most wonderful feeling of relief and gratitude we have ever experienced when perhaps some terrible fear was removed from us. We may add to this the deepest sensation of love we have ever felt and also the most humbling sense of awe and wonder. Then we may add the greatest surge of excitement we have ever encountered along with the most powerful thrill of triumph that ever swept over us. Finally, we may combine with all these the most profound amazement at breathtaking scenes of beauty and power that we have ever experienced. If we take all these magnificent magnificent impressions together, the very best of earthly sensations, magnified many times, we will have some small sense of the majesty and wonder of seeing Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's walk through the the ten traits given here. His head is like gold, pure gold. He is wisdom. In him, I'm sorry, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Secondly, his locks are like clusters of dates and black as raven. He is life. In him is everlasting life. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. He is peace. His eyes are holy yet They are full of peace. They are just and yet filled with compassion. Fourthly, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. He exudes a sweet aroma. His countenance brings the aroma of sweetness to his beloved bride. Fifthly, his lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. We can say of Christ, his speech is grace. His words... His speech there dripping, as it were, with love and grace. Sixthly, his hands are rods of gold set with beryl. Might we say of Christ, his works are magnificent. Those hands that broke the bread to feed the thousands. Those hands by which the blind were made to see and the deaf to hear. Those hands that reached down with compassion to heal the leper at his feet. The hands that washed the feet of his disciples and the same hands that yielded themselves to be bound up and delivered, nailed to a rugged cross for our redemption, whose scars bear the marks of his love. Are not his hands rods of gold set with beryl? Seventhly, his abdomen is carved ivory, inlaid with sapphires. Might we say of Christ, his love is firm, costly who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame for the costly love that he has for his bride eighth his legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold might we say of Christ his strength is secure 
He is endowed with strength and stability in the way of all that is right and good and noble, and he will not falter. He will not fail. Ninth, his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Christ is worthy of honor. Ex- excelling above all others is worth beyond compare. And finally, number ten, his mouth is full of sweetness. His words are loving truth. Every word is wisdom. As David declares in Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And here is the summary of all of this. He is holy, desirable, or as it's rendered in the King James Version, yea, he is altogether lovely. Yea, he is altogether lovely. Spurgeon preached two entire messages out of those five words. (laughs) Yea, he is altogether lovely. And the church might rightly conclude, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And Jesus said to his disciples, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. He is our beloved and He is our friend. I love the final verse in the hymn we sang earlier, My Song is Love Unknown, written by Samuel Crossman in 1664. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine, never was love, dear King, never was grief like Thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Move now to the second point, answering where he may be found. Again, I'll begin with just some general observations. We see it at the onset here, uh, what we might call a curious question. Uh, This is on the heels of her having answered the first question. The daughters of Jerusalem say, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So, this question is reflecting back to the initial dilemma that the groom is gone, the bride has been unfruitful in seeking for him. Again, they're addressing her as most beautiful of women. They, they esteem her very highly. And now they're inquiring as to where he's gone because apparently they don't know and they too want to find him. And then we have from the bride this sort of this turning point, this sort of settled answer. The one who has been desperately searching for him, who actually adjured them to tell, tell, tell the, uh, for them to tell her where he's gone. Now she responds and she says, "My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture his flock in the gardens and gather lilies." So she answers them as one who knows where he might be found in spite of her previous unfruitful search, as if this dark cloud that was obscuring her vision and her sense is finally lifted. She says that he's gone down to the garden, to the beds of 
balsam. But she goes beyond the question, actually, and she gives the reason for why he's there. She says he's gone there to pasture his flock in the garden as he's gathering lilies. So, with this continued reference again to the shepherd king, we see um, that his identity is really bound up in this occupation of his as a shepherd. And then she provides this very confident close. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He who pastures his flock among the lilies. And this is a repeated frame. We've, we've seen this phrase, only now it's inverted in its order. Uh, now declaring it uh, in such a way to say, I am my beloved's. To attest to the fact that she belongs to Him and He belongs to her. So, let's look again through the lens of Christ. And I have three points I want to draw out of this portion. First of all, a loving testimony stirs searching inquiry. A loving testimony stirs searching inquiry. Those who hear the yearnings of the bride for her beloved, even when bemoaning a sense of His withdrawal, will not only see a reflection of His beauty upon them, but actually their hearts stirred to pursue Him as well and to share in this wonderful communion. Matthew Henry comments, even those that have little acquaintance with Christ, as those daughters of Jerusalem here, cannot but see an amiable beauty in those that bear His image, which we should love wherever we see it, though in different dresses. And sometimes the extraordinary zeal of one in inquiring after Christ may be a means to provoke many, as the apostle by the faith of the Gentiles would stir up the Jews to a holy emulation. We perhaps have seen that to be true. Those who are zealous for their love for Christ, how they might provoke others to search after Him also. And I would say on this point it should be noted that the Bride of Christ is most beautiful when she testifies well of her love for Him. Second point, Christ can be found in the sanctuary garden where He feeds His sheep. So, if you'll recall back in chapter 4, we read of the Bride who was a representation of the church being likened to the garden of the groom. A garden that was locked, we were told. A garden that was fruitful. A a garden that was filled with all sorts of beautiful effects of His grace. Well watered by the Spirit. Wafting the aroma of His praise. And really, if we stop and think, this is quite parallel to what we read in Revelation 2, only by a different metaphor, concerning the one who we're told that walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so we see this is where the groom was to be found. The troubled bride could not find him in the busy streets where she was wandering, searching, but rather it was in that beautiful private garden, the place where the good shepherd pastures his flock among the lilies of his grace. In particular, I would say, when the church is engaged in prayer and communion with Christ, there he may be found. Thirdly, His presence 
is for those who abide in His love. Though we may have seasons when He does not seem near to us, we shall by and by return again to find joy and satisfaction in this blessed truth and renew our cause to abide in His love. First, we belong to Him wholeheartedly. And we have an interest in His grace. And consequently, none can pluck us from His loving and omnipotent hand. Secondly, He belongs to us. Every true believer owns the Lord Jesus without shame. Matthew Henry comments, When we have not a full assurance of Christ's love, we must live by a faithful adherence to Him. Though I have not the sensible consolation I used to have, yet I will cleave to this. Christ is mine, and I am His. Let me close then with an application here. I think as we step back and we take in this passage and we think through it and what we might learn from it, I believe this is central here, that dwelling on the excellence of Christ brings spiritual restoration and vitality. Dwelling on the excellence of Christ brings spiritual restoration and vitality. So in this portion of the Song of Songs, there's a desertion of the groom's owning, I'm sorry, a desertion of the groom, which is owing to the bride's lethargy and answering his call to commune with her. And then after her anxious and aggravated search proved fruitful, unfruitful rather, it was only in recounting that the wonders of her beloved that she was brought back into this assurance of His love. And I would say even for those here who may not be inclined as I am to understand the song as an allegory, I hope you will concur with the principle of this application. True spiritual vitality springs from a burning affection for Christ. Let me say that again. True spiritual vitality springs from a burning affection for Christ. The powerful ministry of His apostles was marked by this very thing. The devotion of the early church who suffered much was fueled by this love. And so it has been through the ages since with every vibrant congregation of saints and every godly man or woman who's born good fruit in His kingdom, their witness is marked by a burning love for Christ. All that He is, all that He has done. Now, if this is true, the opposite is as well. It is a sign of spiritual anemia when we think little of Christ. When our lives demonstrate that we have not made much of Christ. For there can be no burning affection for Christ when He has no place in our thoughts, no place in our busy schedule to foster those thoughts, when our hearts and our minds are ruled by other passions and pursuits. I'll close then with a word from Spurgeon on this matter. He says, I am afraid that the visits of Christ to our souls have been disesteemed 
And the loss of those visits has not caused us corresponding sorrow. We did not sufficiently delight in the beauty of the bridegroom when he did come to us. When our hearts were somewhat lifted up with his love, we grew cold and idle, and then he withdrew his conscious presence. But alas, we were not grieved, but we wickedly tried to live without him. It is wretched work for a believer to try and live without his Savior. Perhaps, dear brethren, some of you have tried it until at last you've almost succeeded. You were wont to mourn like doves if you had no word from your master in the morning, and without a love token before you went to rest, you tossed uneasily upon your bed, but now you are carnal and worldly and careless and quite content to have it so. Jesus hides his face. The sun is set, and yet it is not night with you. Oh, may God be pleased to arouse you from this lethargy and make you mourn your sad estate, Even if an affliction should be needful to bring you back from your backsliding, it would be a cheap price to pay. Awake, O north wind, with all thy cutting force, if thy bleak breath may but stir the lethargic heart. May the Lord grant us grace so to love Christ, that if we have not our fill of him, we may be ready to die with hungering and thirsting after him. May we never be able to find a place to build our nest upon while our wing wanders away from the tree of life. Like the dove of Noah, may we drop into the water and be drowned sooner than to find rest for the sole of our foot except upon the ark, Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's close in order. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the glories of Christ. Lord, that you would set our hearts aflame after him. Lord, and we know that it is needful that your Holy Spirit would stir this up. So we pray, Lord, where the embers are cool, barely glowing, Lord, would you fan those into flame? Lord, would you cause us to live lives marked by one compelling thing, and that is a burning hot love for Christ. A love that says, give me Christ or I die. And Lord, I pray as as you would stir hearts with such affection that it would be contagious, that it would spread like a fire in a pasture. Lord, again, we need your Spirit to do this work among us, and we ask that you would. In Christ's name, amen. So with that, I'll open it up to men if there are any corrections or questions or other words to edify this morning. So, you know, some of us have a bend towards the intellectual, looking at and breaking down scripture or rules, regulations, laws, the stuff we can embrace. And so this is a great reminder of the, it's a love story for me, and that passion and love and it, it's so much deeper than any intellectual argument that when you look at evangelism or 
interaction with other Christians, it is so much more than the intellectual. It's truly emotional. Again, I go back to the, the story of Jesus and the woman breaking the vial of perfume to anoint him and wash his feet. She wasn't... There was nothing theological in terms of nuances. She just was pouring out her love and, and he honored her for that. Um, and it was a great rebuke to the disciples sitting at the table enjoying the meal. And we need more of that. Alright. I guess I'll turn it over to you.